Welcome to Policy Talks, a show about policy analysis and international affairs. I'm your host, Brandon Johnson. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Dr. David Zweig, an expert on Chinese politics and political risk, China's domestic and international policy economy, China's resource diplomacy, foreign policy, and U.S.-China relations. Dr. Zweig holds a PhD in political science from the University of Michigan, was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, and is the founder of the Center on China's Transnational Relations at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, where he is a professor emeritus. He's also the VP of the Center on China and Globalization in Beijing. Finally, Dr. Zweig is a Canadian citizen. He has worked with Global Affairs Canada, the IRCC, CETA, the Canadian Naval Forces, and the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. So welcome, Dr. Zweig. Thank you, thank you. Now, a little over a week ago, as you are probably aware, charges against MIT professor of mechanical engineering, Gong Chen, were dropped in the US. So Gong Chen is a nanotechnology expert, and he was arrested last year for failing to disclose links to the Chinese government. He was charged with wire fraud, making false statements on tax returns, and failing to file a report on a foreign bank account. So I'm just curious, what do you make of this case, Dr. Zweig? Well, I think this is a good example of the overshoot of the China initiative, where they um, decided uh, almost in a Maoist style campaign, uh, offices of the FBI were given almost uh, orders or quotas to go out and to find people, uh, American, uh, Chinese living in the United States, born in the mainland, American citizens or green card holders who are teaching uh, to find uh, a significant number of people who they claim were engaged in illegal activities with the United with China. Largely, they were looking for uh, technology transfer, uh, intellectual property theft. Uh, that that was the main target. Started uh, under President Trump uh, in uh, in uh, 2018. Um, and we know that, in fact, uh, John Demers, who was the uh, assistant, uh, the deputy head of the FBI uh, and was running the China initiative, basically gave out a quota to all these organizations, uh, all of his field offices. And so what we've actually seen is a rolling back now of the China initiative. Uh, Gang Chun is one example of it. We also had the case of Huan Gang at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, uh, the case was dropped against him when the FBI agent who arrested him admitted that he had no uh, information to actually prove that uh, Professor Who was guilty. In these cases, uh, I mean, that's the that's the, the, the essence of what uh, uh, Gang Chan's uh, case is, that uh, there's, no, there's nothing to prove that they've engaged in anything illegal, and so they've been charged with wire fraud. Um, which means that they've sent an email where they may have said something that wasn't uh, 100% correct, uh, or they did not register. I mean, in the case of Gung Chang, not registering a bank, I mean, I, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't pay taxes, but I would think that if he didn't pay taxes, the IRS would get him. The case of Lieber uh, at Harvard uh, is much more obvious. Lieber took money, $50,000 a month, uh, put it in the bank account, didn't report it, didn't tell it to the IRS, didn't pay taxes on it. Lieber is a, a, you know, a case uh, where he really is guilty of 
uh, of uh, serious uh, offenses, but but Gung Chan is not, uh, Huan Gung isn't. Um, I've been a special witness for several other cases, the expert witness for several other cases, and a lot of it is just fishing, uh, a fishing expedition where they're getting these people for maybe not disclosing properly to the FBI and, and lying to the FBI is a federal offense in the United States. So I think it's really a rollback. You know, I think, I think that they realize um, without uh, completely saying that the China initiative is closed, uh, the Biden administration is rolling back to a large extent on this. Could you comment on what exactly the China initiative is uh, for those who haven't heard of it or aren't aware of it? And when did this start? Sure. Um, I sometimes get it mixed up either whether it started in March of 2018 or September of 2018. Um, uh, I think it, uh, but it basically um, was started by um, uh, the Attorney General Sessions at the instigation of the President of the United States, Donald Trump. Uh, and it's really an effort to de-link, decouple, um, disengage uh, Chinese uh, science from American science and to find uh, what, what I, as I said before, the, the sense that there's a huge outpouring, outflow of technology from the United States to China through varied illicit methods. Uh, so, and, and uh, it's targeted a program called the Thousand Talents Program, which was begun in 2008 by the then head of the organization department, which is really the personnel department of the Communist Party, a guy named Li Yuan Chao. Um, and his main goal was to recruit mainland born scholars working overseas to come back to China full-time initially. And then he agreed to a part-time program where they would bring technology, bring their skills, bring their knowledge, set up laboratories um, and come and work in China and, and rapidly advance Chinese science uh, and technology basically jump. Uh, China has been capable of doing that back in the 80s. The idea was to sort of jump stages uh, and not have to build up their own level uh, to reach the United States, but to go out and, and get technology and bring that back to China. Uh, and so because it started by the, it's run by the Communist Party, the FBI started paying attention to it in 2015. It put out its first notices, I think May 2015. And then by 2018, uh, it became a full-fledged program uh, and uh, widespread evaluation or widespread investigation by the FBI. And what are the major concerns on part of the FBI and just the U.S. government in general of the TTP? Well, I think I've, I've told you that um, largely it's one is it's run by the Communist Party. Two, since around 2015, after Li Yuan Chao stepped down, it's become much less transparent. Uh, there are some documentations that show that some of the professors who joined this, so a Chinese professor. Same thing in Canada. So it is relevant to the Canadian situation as well, though there is no formal China initiative. But CSIS, you know, the Canadian Security Agency, uh, is also investigating uh, many mainland professors who are in Canada. Uh, they're being investigated for uh, technology transfer. And so it's seen as a major program. China's transitioned from being a partner uh, to being much more of an enemy 
the United States now calls it a strategic competitor, used to be strategic partner. I think the Canadians have a very low view, maybe 10% of Canadians these days like China. So there's a fertile ground uh, within which the intelligence services on the Canadian, um, uh, US, even French, um, can be involved, the Brits, the Australians can be involved in trying to uh, prevent the flow of technology to what some see as a potential enemy. What are your personal views on this? I think it's way overshooting. I think that there is no doubt that there are mainland professors who are coming to the United States and probably to Canada coming out of military institutions uh, who come for a one-year, two-year postdoctoral fellowship, visiting scholar, and whose main job is to spy and collect information as rapidly as they can. I think that's there. There's no doubt. I mean, to me, there's no doubt. So countries have to defend their, their national interest. Um, uh, the problem becomes that, I mean, the, the buzzword that we use is we need smaller fields and higher walls. The problem with the, the China initiative was it's just too wide. Um, you know, the, 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 the walls are low and the field is huge, right? So every, every almost every mainland professor uh, who has any connection to the United, to China, is perceived as a potential spy, what's called non-traditional um, uh, espionage, right? Using using these people um, to to gain access, uh, and and th there's there's very little proof. I mean, these people are you know. Let, let's put it this way: ten years ago, twelve, uh, uh, ten years ago, Obama uh, presidency uh, initiated a major program on cancer with um, with China. Now people who are involved in that program are perceived as being uh, agents of the Chinese government and are being, their lives are being disrupted, their families are being investigated, these people are losing their jobs, they're going back to China. And so in some ways, uh, the United States and not so much Canada yet, but, but they are doing what the Chinese want, which is to create a uncomfortable environment for mainland Chinese born in, who may be citizens of the United States or Canada, could have been here 20, 30 years, um, make it uncomfortable for them to be in the United States or Canada and to go home. Uh, and once they go home, they're definitely going to bring the technology and the knowledge and all of that back. So that's a really benef big benefit for, uh, for China. So it seems really, really silly. Um, I even know some fairly conservative, there's an institute, uh, people in, in um, your university and your graduate program might be interested in, in these people. The organization's called CSET, C S E. CSET, it's a Georgetown, pretty right wing. Um, uh, and even they are arguing, I mean, they see Chinese, they, they, they look for Chinese, uh, uh, I don't want to say they look for spies, but they look for illicit activity by China. They talk a lot about competitiveness and need to keep America competitive and see China cheating um, on a lot of this stuff. And, and they're even saying, um, that this is uh, destructive to the United States science 
It's counterproductive. They did uh, two of their younger researchers did an article in Foreign Affairs. So, so it really is uh, a disadvantage, I think, to the West that tries has tried and benefited so much from bringing over these talented people. Again, recognize that there are problems. You know, the intelligence community wants to check on that. That's fine. But intelligence communities have the tendency to see threats when they're not necessarily there um, and to see a much wider uh, network of spies than is really there and to put much more malevolent uh, uh, in, you know, intention on these activities than is really there. You know, mainlanders want to help China. They love their country. Uh, many of them, and they're glad to go back and and uh, and work and 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 train graduate students. But at the same time, those graduate students are coming to the West, and a lot of the good research that's being done in the West well, is based on having Chinese uh, as postdocs uh, uh, involved in the research. The University of Toronto. I've done research. I've done interviews um, in the biotech sector at the University of Toronto and at York University. And there's some incredibly talented mainland professors there who have set up terrific laboratories who bring over mainland um, uh, postdocs uh, and who it's, it's, it's in some ways it's cheap labor, but it's a swap. You know, you come, you work with me, we do a good paper, we do good publication and you get your name on the publication and then you have the right to take that information back. You've learned that tech transfer has been going on for centuries. You know, the, the, the Americans stole uh, the technology for making um, textile uh, machines uh, from the British. Uh, uh, in the 19th century, uh, maybe the 18th century, uh, so that the new, so that New England could set up a textile industry. And at that time, the the British government said that anybody who was engaged in transferring that kind of uh, commercial technology was punishable by death. Right, and the Brits stole it from the Italians. So technology moves; it's got a history of moving. And one of the ways that you stay ahead is you just innovate um, and you take advantage. You know, um, uh, we can talk a bit about Hong Kong. I always thought Hong Kong was silly for such a long time. Hong Kong kept the mainland students out of Hong Kong. And yet if it wanted to compete in, with, Hong, with uh, Shanghai or Beijing, the secret was to get the best students from Shanghai and Beijing to come down to Hong Kong and come into the universities. Uh, and be the research assistants, and that that kind of human talent, the flow of human talent, is 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 what makes the world rich and richer. And uh, this is really a kind of nationalism, uh, new boundaries, new borders, heightened security, uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, I think it's all negative. And as I said, you know, higher higher walls, smaller fields. Get the guys who are doing it. You know, at one point. Uh, uh, Brandon, uh, we discovered, uh, it was announced that there were five members, five people working for the Department of Energy in the United States, and I believe in the section of the, of the Department of Energy where the nuclear programs are, five people who are members of the Thousand Talents program. Well, that's just stupid. <laughs> you don't allow, right? You don't allow mainland Chinese. Now, they weren't hiding it. 
Um, uh, I don't think they were hiding it. I think that eventually they knew that this was going on. I mean, that's not a smart thing to do. You don't let um, uh, uh, people working for a program funded by the Communist Party into the DEA um, and, and let them working on uh, nuclear technology and things like that. But there's a lot of this work is actually on um, biotech, right? The biggest part of all of this, which also gets to another component of the, the, the China initiative, which is also problematic, um, which is that a lot of the, a lot of the uh, programs that are under attack are biotech. And because they're biotech, they're funded in the United States by the National Institute of Health, the NIH, right? Which we know much more now of because of the viruses. But the NIH is the largest funder in the United States of biotech research. And there are people within the NIH who've decided that the use of any kind of knowledge gained under NIH grants uh, to be shared with China or to be used in China is a fun or, or the professors who are getting NIH grants to be even involved uh, in some detail working with China, that that is somehow contrary to the interests of the NIH and the United States. And so they have gone after the universities that have shared or that have the universities that have allowed their professors, their mainland professors, to be involved in these programs with China. Now, what they've done, what the NIH has done, is it's threatened medical schools in the United States and and said to them, you either purge these people or you're not going to be able to get grants. And so I have actually been a expert witness in one case where uh, uh, a mainland professor who joined the Thousand Talents program, oh, maybe around 2011, 2012, um, and, and who really didn't, I mean, he benefited, they sent him researchers, right? And he trained researchers um, uh, and who then went back to China. Um, but, but he was uh, in, investigated by an inside panel. You know, a lot of the China Initiative is basically run by the Department of Justice. And so they post live, you know, you can read it, you can go on their website and see who's going on, what's going on with this thing with Kung, with Gung Zheng, the fact that, that we found out so quickly that the case would drop. But I know of several cases where charges were never finally publicly announced, but those people were fired from the university and they've gone back to China. And so this is a kind of McCarthyism that's secretive. Um, uh, I was supposed to be a, a expert witness and argue on behalf of this individual. The panel did not want to hear from me. They chose not to hear from me. I had spent time preparing. Uh, and then on their own, they decided that this person was guilty of unacceptable behavior, behavior that in the past would have just meant a slap on the wrist. Look, come on, you really should have reported this. Now that, well, you should have really reported this has now been transferred into you're really illegal. You're harming the interests of the university and therefore you're fired even though you're tenured. And so tenured faculty members are losing their jobs and they're going back to China. No, uh, I am just curious though. So, um, you know, be that as it may, that the vast majority of these professors, these researchers, they aren't committing, you know, acts of espionage. 
but why are they not reporting um, their bank accounts or or is this true? Are they not reporting their uh, accounts through the FNBAR? Uh, are they not reporting their uh, tax returns? So what what is the issue here? Well, sure. So so one of the things the the you know as a professor uh, when I, at HKUST when I was a full time professor uh, I was allowed one day a week uh, of the five days that I was being paid uh, one day a week to spend on my own. Uh, doing any kind of research, consulting, whatever. Uh, I was expected to report that. But in cases sort of with the NIH, for example, or the National Science Foundation, for a long time, they were not very rigorous in demanding full disclosure of other grants. So a Chinese professor might have what's called an NSFC, a National Science Foundation of China grant, he could have that, doing that work in China, and could have an NSF grant in the United States and do his work, that work in the United States. Now, NSF doesn't really like these kinds of situations because it means that they funded the person to do the work, NSF work, that person should be doing that as their main project. So there's this thing we call double dipping. Mm-hmm. So, so the double dipping is a problem. Um, and we recognize that. And there's some people uh, are doing things illegally um, or immorally where they'll be taking two jobs, right? They'll have a job in China and a job in the United States, and they're not reporting that. And that's an example of where they are taking uh, salaries from two places. Now, that is a problem and needs to be cleaned up, but it's not very widespread. Um, people just felt they didn't, you know, if you ask them, they would say, look, I didn't feel that I really needed to report it. My, my application to the NIH or NSF didn't really say I have to disclose everything. It's murky. You know, where do you put whose name goes first uh, on, a, on a publication? Um, uh, I think the Chinese themselves could have done better. The mainlanders in the United States should have been more cautious. I, I think that to a certain extent, they they have responsibility for some of these problems. On the other hand, the climate changed and the climate changed really fast. And I think that in the past, uh, they may have felt the rules were much more relaxed. Uh, it was OK to go back and forth, uh, you know, and spend two months, three months. I mean, you know, American academics, it's a it's, it's a nine month salary and you're expected to go out and get three more months salary. What if that three months takes you to China and China is going to pay you uh, and you're going to be paid in China? Um, you should report that to the IRS, right? Because it's, overs- it's offshore income. In the United States, you, you have to pay taxes on your worldwide income. But people are not really being charged even with tax fraud. So they must have been reporting that. They just somehow were being charged with wire fraud. Um, so, so, you know, there's a little bit of murkiness to it. I think there's no doubt there's some murkiness to it, but it certainly isn't to the level uh, that it has been presented by the intelligence units of the United States and Canada. Now, going back to um, the DOJ's China initiative, uh, you mentioned earlier that there are changes taking place under the Biden administration. Uh, how is that evolving um, in comparison to the way it was facilitated when Trump was in office? Well, it, it's taken about a year. I mean, we're just, I can't even say for sure 
that there are these changes. I'm just seeing that it seems like there's a message gone out. We have no, you know, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the attorney general has not said back off. Uh, we don't know of any public statement or even internal statement. There's just the case of MIT case being dropped. Another case that I know uh, in Arkansas where they've decided potentially to make a deal, uh, which would be a rather generous, I think an okay deal given what the original charges. Um, so, so my sense is that there's, you know, people, the, the Asian American community in, in the United States is up in arms the legal communities up in arms, uh, presidents of universities have written in support. Um, uh, Gung Chung's case, the costs were actually paid for by MIT. Uh, uh, the president was way be was completely behind him. So, so it seems that there is this trend away from this and a recognition. So many, so many quiet, so many voices have been coming up in opposition to it. Um, uh, you know, I've published stuff. There's a, a woman named Margaret Lewis, who's a lawyer who's been speaking publicly about this. The Asian American um, uh, uh, community has been up in arms. Uh, the um, uh, Committee of 100, which is a committee in the United States of the most eminent uh, ethnic Chinese, uh, have been running programs. The Brennan Institute at uh, Columbia versus NYU has been running programs on this. So there's all kinds of attention. And I, I you know, I think the, I think the, the, the that basically um, uh, this administration, the Biden administration is, is hearing it. And so has probably taken some decision to, to roll it back. The problem though, and that with the reason I raised the question, uh, I can't mention the name of the university, but the reason I mentioned the question of these internal investigations is that those are not based on the Department of Justice. So even if, um, you know, Garland, the Attorney General Merrick Garland rolls back this, that stuff can still go on. Um, and I'm just not in a position right now to disclose uh, any of these inf this information because I've signed an agreement. Um, but, but these cases are there. Um, I am in touch with one of the people who did leave this U.S. university and has gone back to China. Uh, and uh, eventually, if it, once his appeal fails, which it probably will, then I'll be able to go public with his case. Uh, but he, he can't find people who want to talk to me. Uh, and I'm pretty sympathetic. So people are very much afraid. Uh, I sent him an email uh, two days ago and I said, why aren't people talking? Right. I mean, you're all getting screwed by, by, you know, this, this, you know, unfair system. And he said that one of his friends who's in China, the FBI went to his friend's house uh, and was, was hassling. Well, look at Gung Chun's and, you know, the investigation of they showed up at 630 in the morning. Right. <clears throat> the FBI walked into his house at 630 in the morning, got his kids out of bed, uh, had the wife panicking. Um, uh, and uh, carted him off. And so in this case that my friend told me, uh, the, the same kind of thing happened. The FBI showed up at the house, uh, invested, talking to the children. Uh, where's daddy? What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, the FBI is not a really sensitive organization uh, on this. You know, they're, uh, 
they they do have a history, I think, of um, racial discrimination. The data uh, that exist that have been published now in journals uh, show that uh, if a Chinese American or an Asian American gets arrested for the same uh, potential crime as a white American, the sentence will be longer. Um, uh, just the data are strong that there is some degree of racial discrimination. And so I think the FBI is just not as sensitive to it as it should be. Now, you mentioned uh, that many uh, members of your community uh, are not speaking with you regarding these issues. Um, I'm just curious to know, what would you like to say if you were given a platform? Uh, I mean, of course, uh, on this podcast, uh, what message do you have for either the DOJ, for either the U.S. government? What would you like to say or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that, that well, for the DOJ, I would say very clearly that if you've just got examples of you know, where these, uh, under these situations where someone may, under out of fear, not told the FBI, uh, uh, disclosed completely, you know, that is a federal crime in the United States. But I think that those are the kinds of things that you want to drop. I think that you want to make sure that people know that in future, they cannot do that. You know, you can put pressure on the universities and say, look, you've got to toughen up the rules, make and monitor this much more carefully and make sure that the Chinese under the Chinese scholars and Asian scholars, uh, scholars of Asian descent understand that and don't do it anymore. Um, you know, where they've found people spying, sure. You know, you catch someone at the airport uh, with a microchip in their shoe uh, and uh, it has the, the nuclear codes, you grab them, you know, <laughs> no problem with that but as i said the the the, the scale you know you got to stop giving quotas right you, you can't how can how can you allow someone to be arrested when they, there's no proof that they did anything at all right you're ruining people's lives you're disrupting a decade and a half or two decades of scientific cooperation uh, particularly on things like cancer um uh you know, so so you 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 want to pay attention. You want the universities to to be more sensitive to this. You want the mainland scholars to be more sensitive, but you also want the Chinese to be more the Chinese government to be more transparent, right? I've approached the U.S. consul, the Chinese consulate here in in New York, uh, when I did this paper for CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I did a paper on the the China Initiative, which they published in May of 2020, uh, and part of it, and I took it to the consulate, and I sat down with the science officer, and I said, look, here's what I think you guys need to do. Here's what I think the Americans need to do. Why don't we figure out some way to start a dialogue? You know, it would be really nice to have a dialogue where China says, okay, we have to be much more above board in the recruitment and the effort to get these people to share technology with us. And the West needs to say, okay, you know, we're not going to go after these people for what is clearly non-illegal activity, right? Um, uh, you know, the Trump administration is gone, but the fear of China has not gone. And so I think that, and, and China, fear of the United States and hostility to the United States has not gone. And so it's in that climate that all this stuff can continue to go on. 
And I think we have to find a way to get around that. Moving ahead, um, speaking of this climate, do you see uh, a silver lining or do you foresee it only getting worse for the next five to 10 years? Or do you know? Well, the easy answer is it's going to get worse. That's the easy answer. Um, Because if one looks at this as a student of international relations from the perspective of a hegemonic power, the United States feeling challenged by a somewhat dissatisfied challenger, that being China, which sees that in a short period of time, it must rise quickly and which feels threatened by the hegemon uh, and morally outraged, rightly or wrongly, by Western efforts to contain its rise. That's a scenario for trouble, right? The power transition theory, uh, uh, Graham Allison, Uh, did this book uh, of 15 or 16 cases, 11 cases of the power transition led to war, Uh, though you could argue, look, there was never a nuclear situation before, Um, but the risks are quite high. Uh, The talking past each other is quite high. The internal sort of the, the, the the hostility, even at the civilian level, uh, is relatively high. The pandemic allowed for very little interaction between people on the two sides. I mean, one of the things that's helped America, Sino-American relations and Sino-Canadian relations is the constant flow of people back and forth. And you, the more you interact, the more you find out, at least with regular people and government officials, not the intelligence community, that, that people on the other side are okay. Um, uh, so, so I worry about that. I also worry... You know, one of the questions you had said to me as a potential topic was, does, what does the West not get right about China? And I think that even it applies, you know, people could call me a dove, but even as it applies to what's going on in the Ukraine right now, right? Nobody has said, none of the voices coming out of Washington ever say that Putin feels threatened by the expansion of NATO into the Ukraine, right? That would put NATO troops on his border. Uh, How would the Americans feel if a Russian-backed security organization got Mexico to join Right. And I mean, from the Russian perspective, the Ukraine used to be part of the Russian Empire, right, or the Soviet Union. So in their own minds, they have some sense that it's theirs. Uh, Take that to the case of China and look at the cases of Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong and Taiwan. Now, I think that in each of those cases, the people in those territories uh, in a perfect world should have much greater autonomy. Well, Taiwan has the autonomy, though that's a threat. Uh, 
Um, uh, Hong Kong has lost that level of autonomy, the one country, two systems, and Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong with a transition towards greater democracy. Uh, but if you're sitting in Beijing and you look south, right, and you look at the dynastic cycles, right, the, the collapse of the dynasties always came from the margins. And here you have in Xinjiang, you have a people of another uh, ethnic group, alternative language, alternative religion, um, and uh, from outside of that territory, there are strong radical Islamic forces who want to try and disrupt uh, uh, China's rule uh, in Xinjiang. Now, of course, I always believe that China way overreacts in any of these international security or what they see as national sovereignty and as national security, uh, China way overreacts on all of these, right? Um, you know, they've never talked to the Dalai Lama in Tibet, right? Who's probably a much more peaceful guy than the Tibetan youth movement's gonna be uh, when he's gone and when you may get some kind of uh, much more radical action in Tibet. But again, you know, China's view is, well, we'll just shut it down, which is basically what happened in Hong Kong, right? Instead of moving Hong Kong forward towards greater democracy uh, with a sensitivity uh, to the ethnic or the cultural or the uh, identity issues of Hong Kong people, in Hong Kong, China largely wanted to play down any of those ethnic, that those identity differences, and was always shocked that young people in Hong Kong would have some identity with America or Britain. Uh, well, they should. Their parents went to school there, right? So many of them went to school. One in one in seven Hong Kongers had a foreign passport. Right. So here's all these younger people, 20 years old, growing up and their parents have went to school overseas at foreign passports, you know, have the strong uh, overseas identity um, and uh, a hope and aspiration for greater democracy. And China didn't shut down that democracy. Uh, I believe that they offered uh, back in 2014 a path towards enhanced um, electoral system but it wasn't enough for the young people of Hong Kong. And then China, rather than back off, decided to tighten up. And so it started to tighten up in 2015, 2016, uh, and then tightened up in further in 2019, which is when the violence started. Uh, and that violence was predictable. Uh, I wrote a report actually for the Guangdong provincial government, and I told them that they'd better learn to live with um, uh, civil disobedience. You know, this was just around the time of Occupy Central. And I said, you guys better learn to live with something like Occupy Central and, and, and make some concessions to civil disobedience because if you don't, the next step is going to be violence. And after violence could come terrorism. Um, and, have, they uh, learned, have they learned or are they still tightening the restrictions even more at this point. Well, they're tightening more and more. No, no, they didn't learn. They, they took the alternative strategy, which was they decided that there would be no, no, I mean, I, I know the head of the, the, the person who was the head of the legal department and the liaison office, the mainland's office 
in Hong Kong. I, I, I know him. He was um, uh, the, the dean of the Tsinghua University Law School. And uh, he made it very plain uh, at a meeting of the political, Hong Kong Political Science Association that civil disobedience was off the table hmm. in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, while for a brief moment they recognized the issues of identity, where Hong Kong young people feel that they're Hong Kongers rather than Chinese. Uh, for a brief moment, the mainland, the government in Beijing recognized that and then backed off. And that's the main issue in Taiwan. You know, that I'm, so I'm moving all along, right? So we've got, we've got Xinjiang, we've got Tibet, we've got Hong Kong, and then we get to Taiwan. And in Taiwan, it's even more entrenched the sense of Taiwanese identity because mm -hmm. it was a political strategy of Li Donghui, the president of Taiwan in 1990s to, to um, uh, teach young people to have an, a Taiwanese identity. They changed maps. Uh, they made Taiwan appear to be always independent. Um, uh, Taiwan, they created what they call Taiwan consciousness. Right, Taiwan Easter, right? They created this Taiwanese consciousness. Yeah, I, I and, and the more that the mainland squeezes. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, I was just commenting. I can definitely see that I, I studied in Taiwan back in uh, 2012. And uh, I would um, have older people on metros or the metro tell me to speak Taiwanese, not Mandarin, because we are in Taiwan. So that strong Taiwanese identity is definitely there, especially in the South, in Kaohsiung. Sure, especially in the South, but you know, um, uh, it, 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 I was there was an article recently in the New York Times that said that sixty percent of the people right now are feeling very strongly about independence, whereas in the past, and that's because China has put so much more pressure and is flying airline air, you know, China. That's just the way that that's the way China responds to situations, um, which is ratcheted up and uh, not calm down because they believe that if they back off, they'll be seen as being weak and then they'll lose the territory. Mm. So the only other alternative is tighten up and crack down. And that's what they do. And Hong Kong's a terrific, unfortunately, Hong Kong's an example of that. And we can watch it with Taiwan. And we've seen what they've done in Xinjiang uh, in terms of uh, uh, education camps, you know, education institutes. Uh, and uh, potentially what you know, some people, I would feel to a certain extent comfortable saying a, a certain degree of cultural genocide, the effort to, to destroy the Uyghur culture because it's a threat to the mainland's political stability. I certainly don't see it as genocide, and I think that that's where the West goes overboard in characterizing this as uh, an issue of genocide. They're not taking out um, you know, mass numbers of, of Uyghurs and killing them. This is uh, Holocaust uh, uh, week, or yesterday was uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, so they're certainly not doing that, but they, but they have, you know, China has a powerful culture that has in the past uh, sort of pressed down and, and wiped out to a large extent external cultures that have come in. They did it to the Manchus, uh, they did it to the Mongols. Uh, they did it to the Jews who came in the Tang Dynasty. Um, we were a very small number, um, but but that those problems, that that kind of 
um, assimilation and now forced us, it's a forced assimilation and a um, uh, deculturalization of the Uyghurs. Um, th- those are serious problems and that's the way China responds. Uh, and so Hong Kong young people didn't want to live in that kind of world. And the last thing that the Taiwanese people want to do is give up their independence, uh, their freedoms, uh, and, and take one country, two systems. Now, on a final note, uh, before we end this, okay. uh, uh, this meeting, um, moving forward, um, we see that Hong Kong has, of course, lost its autonomy under one country, two systems. Uh, what do you foresee the future of Taiwan will be like? Uh, there's been talk of a potential invasion, at least uh, that's what you hear with uh, Xi Jinping's speeches. But is this possible? Is this plausible? Well, I, I don't I don't see an invasion. Uh, uh, there are better strategies, such as uh, making it very difficult, you know, a, a kind of, not even a boycott. I'm just trying to think of the word, um, you know, to, to um, uh, set up a blockade around Taiwan. Much harder for the Americans uh, to fight a blockade. Uh, an invasion is much more obvious. An invasion would lead to potentially a war with the United States. Same thing with the issues, situation in Ukraine. Um, I, you know, I, I think that any American president would be forced, particularly in the current political circumstance, to send troops, to send two aircraft carrier battle units uh, quickly to the Taiwan Straits were uh, uh, the, the mainland to decide to invade. But a blockade, uh, much tougher cyber attacks, uh, all kinds of things to undermine the Taiwanese economy. I think all of that would be a possibility. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not optimistic. Uh, you know, the sea is an impatient man. He sees Taiwan coming back to the mainland probably is one of the core things that he wants to do in his life. Right. Deng Xiaoping brought back Hong Kong. Uh, that was his great historical contribution. These guys think in great historical contributions, right? No Canadian is saying, oh, we should have gotten Alaska from the, from the Russians. But now I want to be, if I want to be remembered as the prime minister who brought Alaska back to Canada, right? <laughs> we just don't do that kind of stuff, but, but these guys do. Um, and uh, I, I think that that's a big motivation for C. Uh, uh, part of his a good indicator of uh, the, the China's um, the China dream the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation would be to get back all of the territories that they feel rightfully or wrongfully that they lost and I think Taiwan's part of that um, so I, I'm I'm not optimistic but uh, uh, the people of Taiwan, I think, will will hang in there. I think the Americans have shifted somewhat much more closely to Taiwan. Uh, I think the Trump administration did that. I think the Biden administration will maintain that. So that, that has a benefit for the people of Taiwan, but it also uh, threatens, uh, makes the Chinese demand for some solution a much more 
dangerous, much more dangerous situation. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Zweig. This has been an excellent talk, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, uh, yeah, well, I'm, you know, I am Canadian. It's a nice chance to have this conversation about Canada or China. Same, same for me as well. I, I'm almost Canadian. I've been here about two years and uh, may very well be someday. <laughs> yeah, well, the Canada makes it nice. You can, in one more year, you can get, you can start to, the clock can start ticking on your, um, on your permanent resident status. Oh, yes. Well, I've already been one for about a few weeks now, so. <laughs> <laughs> great. All right, well, thank you very much. Okay, great.